morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. It's April 23rd, 2023. We're like, God willing, a week away from the writ being dropped and Alberta politics getting even more crazy than it already is. And Lord knows it's plenty crazy as it stands. We're going to try to make sense of a little bit of that tonight as well on our open forum, which is, I think, what we're going to be calling it going forward. Uh, we're going to be talking media. We're going to be talking journalism. We're going to be talking CBC a little bit going to get probably maybe hopefully a little bit spicy if people tag in and if people they don't then we'll see what we see but uh to get started right away before we uh before we jump too far into things we want to just take a second to turn the clock back a a whopping i think it's three and a half months sorry for the delay guys uh, but I do want to thank you for being here today. Uh, obviously, I have a background in the media, understand the jobs that uh, you have to do, and I have heard from my staff that you want to have a bit more opportunity to ask me questions directly on issues other than the issues that we're doing announcements on. So I know that Ralph Klein used to do this quite frequently, and so I'm, I'm happy to be able to accommodate that. And this will be the first, I hope, of many sessions like this. Just wanted to set the stage with that. That's from a couple months ago when Daniel Smith held a press conference for the sake of having a press conference where she announced that she was going to uh, have, apparently, perhaps apparently not, press conferences regularly where she was going to be talking to people and letting the media ask questions because transparency and accessibility and her staff were like, Danielle, you got to be more transparent and accessible. She took that seriously, apparently for about five whole minutes. But we're going to get into that as we go through the night. Before we do, though, it's fascinating how Alberta just doesn't seem to want to let go of the fact that The Last of Us was filmed in, a, in our lovely province just a, a short while ago. It seems like everybody's trying to revisit that whole ethos and we saw that again this week when at a surprisingly early time it appears that danielle smith and the ucp decided to stick with the theme of the last of us and they brought forward the reanimated remains of stephen harper it's been through some tough years since 2015 but the economy is finally hitting its stride again and employment is booming Yet that could all be derailed if the Notley NDP wins. We've seen what they've done before. Job killing, tax hiking, anti-energy policies leading to mass layoffs, business closures, and recession. It took years to recover from the last NDP government. We can't risk going backwards again. Vote for Alberta. Vote Conservative. It's a little bit of, a little bit of peaking, so I'm going to say that he's, he's one of the clickers, is my guess but there's a lot to unpack in that video first of all the fact that the video was even released before the writ has been dropped even though we're in the campaign season it seems like it's all very confusing but uh typically one would think that if you're going to bring up the the great 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 grandfather of conservatism especially in the province of alberta but uh, Ghibli across Canada. If you're gonna if you're gonna bring out the the elder 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 statesman of conservatism, you're gonna do it when it's gonna have maximum impacts. You're gonna do it when people are paying close attention. But for reasons, that's not what happened. They decided to roll out this video 
basically a week and a half, almost two weeks before the writ is actually dropped. But what's even more, there's a couple other interesting things about the, the video. We weren't the first to, to make the joke. We're going to make it again because we like the joke so much. Uh, the only thing that's missing from the sort of the vibe, the feeling of that video is uh, Mr. Harper holding up a newspaper to demonstrate proof of life. The, the production on that video is, I'm going to say, lower than what we do here. And that's saying something, quite frankly. Um, it, was a, it was a very, there's some very strange production choices that are going into that. He's up against a, a, a very boring wall. His delivery is quite dry. But perhaps the most interesting thing about it is he doesn't say, vote for the United Conservative Party. He doesn't say, vote for Daniel Smith. What he says is, don't vote for the NDP, vote conservative. Which is really quite fascinating because it almost begs the question, was this like a leftover? Was this a B-roll video from the federal election that somehow Team Smith and the UCP got their hands on and they decided, hey, he doesn't say not us. Let's just let's just roll with it and, and see what happens. It's a, it's a fascinating little piece. But moving on from there, Sunday night, we had us a bit of conversation about this guy right here. This Tariq Khan. He's the, he's the UCP candidate, nomination candidate from 2019, who was disqualified because he shared some things on social media that were uh, anti-Semitic, racist, apparently endorsing terrorism. Not a great look for the UCP. Now, we shared a couple of, uh, of, of pictures of the social media posts as well as the letter. We received this letter from one of our anonymous DMs. And uh, it didn't take very long before things, uh, things heated up pretty quick. Uh, the Mr. Khan apologized. But we got to pay close attention to the apology. Now, the full statement hasn't been released. He hasn't, hasn't posted that on his social media for some reason. But the... What appears to have been reported on was that he was sorry that he shared those things on social media. So there has not been a publicly made disavowing of those views. It's just, oh, I was new to social media and I didn't know that people would get upset. Paraphrasing a little bit, but that was the, the full effect of the, the apology. Now, he resigned after, on Monday morning... The, the the NDP shared some screenshots. Might have been from this show. Hard to say. Uh, and they made a big thing out of it. It was the subject of uh, several questions at some press conferences. And Mr. Khan elected to resign. Which is not the, the most optimal choice, perhaps, for the UCP. Because one would think Daniel Smith via or i should say rob anderson via daniel smith would want to make it very clear that the ucp government premier smith's office um, does not in any way condone support they actively are going to condemn these views but instead mr Khan resigned but there's still some questions that that we find ourselves lingering with and we saw casey medu at a press conference this week do a whole thing about hey you know um there's no way we could have known. It's not like we vetted him ourselves and then rejected him ourselves. That's exactly what happened. 
But there's some other questions that come up because Mr. Khan is a bit of a heavy hitter. It seems like in the little UCP world. Here we have a picture. Still getting the right and left thing figured out. Here we have a picture of Mr. Khan where he's with Muhammad Yassin. He's with Mickey Amory. He's campaigning in the 2019 election. He's with Rajan Rajan Sani. That's like three people who have been UCP ministers he was hanging out with. And it's worth noting again that when we go back to the announcement, and this is the picture of the announcement, who is standing right there? Rajan Sani. So there's a lot of overlap here. But again, there's even more overlap because as we highlighted last week, he went down to campaign for Danielle Smith in her by-election. And again, look who he's hanging out with. There's Mickey Amory again. So this, this creates some, let's go with some confusion, some, some apprehension, some questions. Because the first question has to be, there is no way that these people didn't know, especially Rajansani, because it's worth noting that the constituency that Tariq Khan wanted to run in is the constituency that Rajansani ran in in the last election. Not the one she's running in in the next election, but the last one. It's strange credibility that she would have not been aware at all that one of her nomination competitors got booted because of the, the anti-Semitism and the Holocaust denial and the go-terrorism posts. It's a little bit more than some people would would probably believe it's a little bit difficult to believe that he's been hanging out with Mickey Amory since like at least 2019 before the last election and Mickey Amory had no idea how did nobody recognize that they should raise some red flags about this guy getting onto this panel or did they just choose to overlook it because you know there's an election and he clearly put it in his time with Danielle Smith but Mr. Khan was the only one who had a bit of a, a, a disqualifying week in Alberta politics because we also saw the candidate for Fort McMurray get disqualified. Allegedly, he's facing some, some court action for, from a fellow party member, no less. Um, and that court action is going to be going on throughout and over the the election period the ucp said no nah, we don't want anything to do with that and uh two weeks before allegedly the writ is going to be dropped they decided to bring back daniel smith supporter tanny yao now there's a lot of complexity and nuance that's going on here because tanny is the the ucp mla he's also the guy you might remember he kind of disappeared for a little while during the whole Aloha Gate period, they lost him for a good chunk of time when he was traveling outside of the country after the provincial government had said, hey, don't travel outside the country. So he's got some problems. He also, one would have thought, given that he is the candidate for Fort McMurray, one would have thought that it would have been a no-brainer for him to support Brian Jean in the UCP leadership race, but he didn't. He supported Daniel Smith. So now we've already seen there's a, an ex-deputy premier, Thomas Lekasik, the Honorable Thomas Lekasik, who has come forward and said, yeah, this, this smells a lot like it was probably a hit job. 
this smells a lot like getting this close to the election. Somebody wanted to make sure that the, the very good poodle who supported Daniel Smith, who's a current MLA, somebody wanted to make sure that he stayed in as the candidate for the UCP. And maybe there was some chicanery. Maybe there were some shenanigans that happened in order to, to make this little move occur. But it wasn't all bad for friends of the UCP this week. John Horseman, who campaigned in the UCP leadership race for, I think it was about 10, maybe even a solid 15 minutes. Uh, he, he had himself a really good week. Some of you might remember John announced that he was going to be running in the UCP leadership race. He said that he was, you know, he didn't come with any baggage. He was going to be a great guy to have running in the UCP leadership race. And then I think it was 15, 20 minutes later, he said, uh, you know who's really, though, a great guy? That Travis Taves. He's the best leader. Of all of the leaders, he's the best. We should have Travis Taves running the, the show. I'm going to drop out of the race and endorse Travis Taves, almost as if that was like some sort of political strategy that some people have speculated on. I don't know. But it happened, nonetheless. Something else happened this week, though, because Mr. Horseman landed himself a, a nice little gig. He got appointed to the AIMCO board. And when we're talking about AIMCO, we're talking about pensions, which has been a, uh, a pretty hot-button issue over the last little while. Well, Mr. Horseman, who does have a background in finance, to be, to be fair and to be clear, he was appointed to the AIMCO board. But the fun, the cherry on top, the mm, that's just so on brand. When we take a look at who appointed him, it was none other than President of the Treasury Board, and Minister of Finance, Travis Taves. Because, of course, it was. Now, some other things that we got to talk about before we get to our, our, our main event. A little bit of housekeeping we got to deal with. And one of them has to do with an organization that we keep talking about on the show. We keep talking about them because they're super relevant to this next election. They're super relevant to provincial politics. We're talking about Take Back Alberta. They, uh, they like to both minimize and maximize their role in, in provincial politics. Uh, it's well known that they were able to install pretty much half the UCP board in the last UCP AGM. They've been doing a fairly effective job of going around rural Alberta and making sure that they're taking over constituency associations to make sure that they're getting their candidates in. We saw one of the, the big guys for Take Back Alberta run the campaign for uh, Livingstone McLeod, I hope I'm pronouncing it properly this time. Uh, she was backed by him. She's the same one who has that magical $1,500 in anonymous donations that were provided by Give, Send, Go, which have raised a lot of questions. Um, but that's not the only constituency that they've been able to do this in. They've been able to do it across the province. Uh, Jennifer Johnston is another example of a Take Back Alberta affiliated candidate. And this is part of the problem that we're looking at, because as we get closer and closer to the provincial election, it's looking more and more like this is going to be an extraordinarily close election. There's some polling and some projections that have it within one to two seats. That's how many seats are going to decide who's forming government, the NDP or the UCP. Now, where this gets to be particularly complicated is when you have a, a slate, in effect, that have been put together, like Take Back Alberta, um, if they have three, four, five, ten MLAs who are on Team Take Back Alberta, 
if they go to Danielle Smith or whoever replaces Danielle Smith after she ekes out a tiny little victory, if she gets one, uh, and they say, hey, Danielle, um, so we're, we've got a list. We've got a list of some things that we'd like to have done. You're going to do them. Or we're going to form our own little party and you're going to lose government. Or when you put up your next provincial budget, we're going to turn it into a non-confidence vote. So Take Back Alberta is uh, potentially going to be in a, in a place where they could have a lot of power. They could have a lot of sway over the current government. Now, Take Back Alberta has repeatedly said, no, 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 we're not partisan. But there was a couple of interesting things that popped up in their Telegram group this week. Benita Peterson, yes, that Benita Peterson, the one who stood outside of hospitals and called nurses liars for treating COVID patients, she put a couple of things in their, their Telegram group because she's one of their main organizers now. How to encourage individuals to vote conservative. Free online workshop via Zoom, Sundays, 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. And then there's a link that you can register at. Another post that was in the uh, Take Back Alberta Telegram group. I'm getting daily texts now from the UCP War Room. If you're not re yet receiving these texts, send me a text and I'll help you get signed up. Benita. Here's the one from today. And then shares the UCP War Room text. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the UCP War Room in a bit. But this seems to fly in the face of how Take Back Alberta has said, no, no, we're not, we're not recommending anyone. We're not affiliated with anyone. From an article uh, just a couple of months ago, Van Hugobas said TBA, Take Back Alberta, encourages supporters to vote for nominees who prioritize respect for charter rights, but there's no formal endorsement or financial backing. Van Hugobas a Fort McLeod town councillor is facing a charge of mischief over $5,000 in connection with his participation in the 2002 Coots border blockade. Like I said, that's from a CBC article on February, 20, February 16th, 2023. And this is the reoccurring problem with Take Back Alberta. They say they're one thing and then they appear to do something else. As a, as a fun little follow-up, we did ask David Parker, the... Uh, the black belt leader of Take Back Alberta, if he could clarify any uh, truth or deny to the rumors that are fairly well substantiated, that he's actually married to one of the correspondents, correspondents, writers, uh, creative writers, I think might possibly be the best term. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, for True North. Because as we talked about in an episode a little while ago, we couldn't help but notice that there seemed to be some message coordinating going on between True North and Take Back Alberta, which was super weird. Mr. Parker didn't get back to us, so we'll just leave it at that for the time being. Moving on from there, though, we got us another update about Danny's drug problem. Talking about the children's meds. $80 million of children's medications that were ordered poorly. Maybe they got the shipping address wrong. You know when you're ordering something online and you're trying to get the, the address in properly, but it auto-populates with something and you're not paying enough attention and then all of a sudden, oh man, my stuff's going to Chicago. Maybe that's what the prolonged delay has been because we're now in April, almost the end of April. Danielle Smith promised the delivery of these drugs by the end of December there's a few months in between there. Well, we found out that we were getting the first initial shipments for consumers 
of the acetaminophen or the children's Tylenol a little while back. Finally got word on the children's ibuprofen or pedifen, which is, there's something just uncomfortable about that name. Uh, that's now going to be available, but kind of, sort of. It's going to be split again between hospitals and retail, which is different than how it was originally announced. And it's really important to highlight that because there are more than a few people who are suggesting quite passionately that one of the reasons why we're seeing this stuff getting dumped into the hospitals is because they're dumping it into hospitals. They're dumping it into the healthcare system because they spend $80 million buying children's medication at almost double the retail price where they screwed up the labels and they screwed up the caps. And now they're stuck with all of this product that nobody wants because nobody has any faith in it. And the dosing's different than the regular stuff that everybody's used to. And, oh, wait, it turns out this stuff, the pedophan, can't even be sold in other provinces until they receive approval. Which, again highlights how mismanaged this entire process has been how a this is just a disaster from a procurement standpoint because one of the things that they justified at the beginning was hey you know what we probably won't need four million bottles we're going to share if other provinces want them they can have them but that forces the question why <laughs> why why would any other province say, hey, we can have the off-brand Danny brand medication. We just have to jump through a bunch of extra hoops or we could order the stuff like we regularly do. The supply chain issues have been resolved. Why would any province want to go down that road? It doesn't make any sense. And it just perpetuates the, the disaster that this whole thing has been. Going to shift gears again and move on to a fascinating little event that happened uh, this week in Calgary. So the Calgary Economic Development announced that they were going to be having a report to the community. At this report to the community, there was going to be a conversation with Daniel Smith, Rachel Notley. Got a lot of people's attention. We're heading into an election, and there's going to be Daniel Smith, Rachel Notley on the stage at the same time having a conversation, they've got some difference of opinions. It could get a little bit spicy. But at the very last minute, plans changed. Now, according to, once again, our DMs, we were told that uh, this was very much a last minute change in plans. And we saw a little bit of, of positioning that was done in the, the social media in regards to this, where they were like, oh, did we say conversation multiple times? Uh, we meant conversations. You know, typos happen. But uh, it ended up that Daniel Smith and Rachel Notley had two separate conversations with Mayor Jody Gondek. Now, this was a bit of a, a strange event for a lot of different reasons. We weren't there. We were told it started like two hours late because of all of the, uh, the, the tomfoolery that went on with the scheduling. It's a little strange that Mayor Gondek would be moderating this. Uh, I mean, at this point, it's not a conversation. It's more of an interview. But it certainly caused a, a lot of eyebrows to be raised. First of all, why either leader would agree to this sort of uh, an event going into an election 
There's been no shortage of pundits who have pointed out, well, this was a great way for Daniel Smith to elevate Rachel Notley's profile. And with the fact that uh, Daniel Smith changed the terms of the agreement reportedly and then booked it out of there right away without answering any questions, that gave Rachel Notley the opportunity to answer a bunch of questions, do a big media scrum, have some candidates behind her, look... It's, it's very strange why Team Daniel Smith would offer to do the... to agree to do the event in the first place. It's almost as if Daniel Smith can't turn down a microphone. Moving on from there. And this is where we're going to start to get into our more robust content because there's some, there's some things that we definitely have to talk about. There's a new article that we came out in Globe and Mail. It was the result of a FOIP request that was uh, done by Alana Smith. And this FOIP request revealed that the UCB government has for some time now been looking at something called involuntary treatment, forced treatment. The basic idea is, hey, you know what? If we've got somebody who's doing the drugs, we don't want them doing the drugs. And if they're doing the drugs too much, subjectively, there's no objective measurement of that especially when we're talking about the varying quality of drugs that exist on the streets. If, but if we decide that they're doing too much of the drugs, then we're going to force them into treatment. This is a huge, big deal for a lot of different reasons. The first one being, even the FOIP documents recognize that doing so is a major violation of charter rights. There's no precedent for saying to somebody, hey, I don't like your drug habit, so I'm going to force you to get treatment. There's no precedent for that. Not only is there no precedent for that from a legal standpoint, certainly there's a historical precedent. We've done a great job in this country over time saying, hey, disenfranchised segment of society, we don't like what you're doing, so we're going to force medical procedures on you. We can talk about forced sterilizations. That's part of Canada's history. It's not one that most people would look at and go, you know what? Maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we should go back and this time try it with drug addicts. Maybe if somebody's using drugs, maybe we should, maybe this time it'll work. Nobody, except apparently the UCP, is suggesting that we should do something like that. And I want to get right ahead of the false equivalency argument that I know is going to be coming. The vaccination piece is not the same thing. Nobody came to anybody's homes took them out of their homes, forced them into a hospital where they had to get vaccinated. Everybody who did or didn't get vaccinated had a choice. Some of those choices came with privileges. Some of those choices came with consequences. But there was always a choice. It was never forced. And that is a tremendous difference. Because one would think... If the freedom crowd, who didn't like the choices that they were given when vaccinations first started rolling out, one would think that they would be the first in line starting up their trucks, putting their flags up high to say, hey, you can't force people into medical institutions to receive treatment. 
You can't do that. Oddly, we haven't seen any convoys this week for that. It's almost as if that's not what it was about. But the other piece of this that's really, really important to contextualize is the fact that when we're talking about this kind of forced treatment, it doesn't work. But you wouldn't know that. If you listen to the press conference that we saw this week with Mike Ellis, when he was asked explicitly whether or not this was something he supported. Minister Ellis, um, you were the former uh, Minister of Addictions, yes. and uh, we're talking about these involuntary uh, treatment facilities. Do, do you support that? or? Well, it's, it's a pretty broad question. Uh, I think I've been actually very public in saying that we would be looking at um, involuntary treatment options. Yeah, I mean... I mean, obviously, under mental, uh, uh, the Mental Health Act, we do have involuntary treatment. And obviously, uh, we have what is known as a Form 10. So police officers, if the person is posing a danger to themselves or others, uh, can uh, certainly um, uh, determine that that person needs to go to get some medical treatment. Uh, I think that it can be argued that uh, if somebody is uh, overdosing and being Narcaned anywhere from five to ten times a day, uh, that that person likely is posing uh, a potential danger to themselves and that we may have to do some sort of medical intervention in order to help uh, save their life. So, you know, all options are on the table. I think we have to do whatever it takes to make sure that we protect people. It's part of that recovery-oriented system of care. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that little statement from Minister Ellis there, who, by the way, is, as he's very proud to point out, is an ex-police officer, which pretty much makes him an expert in mental health and addictions, hashtag sarcasm. But let's take a look at some of the things that he said there. First of all, he equated somebody using drugs with somebody who would be apprehended under a Form 10. Now, he's absolutely correct. A Form 10 is issued when somebody is a threat to themselves or to others, but the threshold for that threat is pretty freaking high. You have to want to die. Pretty much period, full stop. There is a world of difference between somebody who is using drugs. Now, they may be using them recreationally. They may be using them uh, to self-medicate. They may be using them because they fell down the rabbit hole of addiction when they were prescribed oxycodone, when everybody thought oxycontin was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you couldn't possibly get addicted to it, but they did. They may have been failed by their prescribing physician. They may have been failed by the medical system, but to equate any of that to saying that that means this person wants to die is unbelievably irresponsible. Using Mr. Ellis's threshold that he talked about right there, are you drinking? Well, you know that it could cause liver failure. We're going to have to arrest you and put you in forcible treatment. Are you driving past the speed limit? Well, you know, we've talked about the fact that speeding has an increased risk of death. So we're going to have to arrest you and clockwork orange your ass. It's a false equivalency and it's one that preys on fear. But he wasn't done with the false equivalencies or the preying on fear by any like this comes out, just like when stories would come out uh, with a previous uh, uh, minister, and it would be about the safe consumption sites and the problems at the safe consumption sites, immediately you would have activists who would come out that minutes 
hours later and say this is a terrible idea, it's awful, we can't do this, what we need is maybe more safe consumption sites or a so-called safe supply of drugs, or they would come up with all sorts of things, but they would immediately try to shut down the idea. And I'm sure that's going to happen today if it hasn't happened already. Just shut down the idea of involuntary treatment. I mean, again, these are largely activists. What, What do you say to those people who immediately jump on all of these ideas to try to deal with crime, social disorder, and addiction? Well, I would say I would say uh, I, th- I say Albertans have had enough of the activists. To be honest with you. Boy, I want to be in a room when Mr. Ellis decides he's going to say that to take back Alberta. I want to be in a room when Mr. Ellis decides he's going to say that to Canada Action or any of the other groups that are, by definition activists. There's nothing wrong with being an activist. And in fact, it is the only thing that holds governments to account. Before Mr. Kenny and the UCP government were in power, all of the work that they did to try to get more pipelines was activism. To just say Alberta is tired of activists, to dismiss activism out of hand, is incredibly irresponsible and short-sighted, especially when you consider that some of those activists are in fact experts. The only difference between an expert and an activist is the expert decides that they're going to take some time out of their day to try to raise awareness about the things and the stuff, whatever the subject is. There's no shortage of experts who have become activists. There's no shortage of activists who have become experts. When we take a look at organizations like Moms Stop the Harm, these are people who have been directly impacted, who have become subject matter experts on these issues because they had to. So for Mr. Ellis to just stand up and kind of cock back like that and say, well, you know, Albertans are tired of the activists not only shows an incredibly dismissive attitude toward expertise, but it also demonstrates an unwillingness to listen. And there are some folks that we should be absolutely listening to. I'm going to play a video for you now. We're going to play it in full because it's critically important. It's been across social media this week because one of those activists, one of those experts who has been not only on the front line of the COVID situation, but certainly on the front line of the opioid crisis for more than a few years now, decided to weigh in and share her thoughts. And the fact that this is somebody who works in an emergency room, this is an emergency room physician you're about to hear named Dr. Shazma Nathani. The fact that she is so distraught at the direction And the policy that this government is going to implement should give everyone pause. But if there's anyone it should give pause to, it absolutely should be Mike Ellis. And for some reason, the audio on that isn't working. So we're going to come back to that video. Uh, We're going to get it working because I don't know why it cut out like that. I'm going to vamp on this for a minute because I think I can. And it's only going to take a quick second to get this video uploaded. Here's the thing. 
with this with this policy. There is a long-standing history with the UCP government of demonstrating that they haven't a clue about what actually works in regards to getting people into treatment, getting them treatment that works for them and keeping them alive in the meantime. One of the other things that Mr. Ellis talked about while he was uh, pont pontificating on the, the harms of drugs and why we need this policy, he shifted gears and started talking about crystal meth. And one of the other things that Rick Bell did in that press conference was he talked about, hey, would this be able to be used for people who are like breaking the law? Would this be able to be used for, for people who are doing like all the stabbing? And Mike Ellis decided to speculate. And let's be clear, it was speculation. It was nothing more than speculation. He decided to speculate that, uh, you know, all of these recent stabbings that we've seen, all of these uh, recent issues that we've seen with public disorder, all of these are coming from crystal meth. And we have to have a way to, we have to, have a way to stop this and prevent it from, from happening again. Well, first of all, one would think that a police officer, an ex-police officer, would be able to maybe come up with some ways to stop people from breaking the law when they're actively breaking the law. So if somebody's stabbing someone, for example, one would think that an ex-police officer would be able to say, maybe there's a mechanism that I could utilize here to get, uh, to get the stabbing to stop. But apparently that's just a little bit of a, of a reach for Mr. Ellis for some reason. But the reality is, this UCP government has gone out of their way to discredit effective and actual methods that work for dealing with the opioid crisis. And I wanna talk for a quick second about the Lethbridge Supervised Consumption Site because this is one that they love to go to and it drives me absolutely crazy. They closed down one of the busiest, the UCP government, Whilst having their creme brulee, they closed down one of the busiest supervised consumption sites in North America under false pretense. They claimed that the organization had lost a million dollars in change, and that's simply not true. They were able to find that that money was never missing after they'd already made the decision to close it down. There is a puritanical bent when it comes to dealing with substance abuse and the rank hypocrisy that exists in this whole conversation when it comes to the UCP's policies on dealing with the opioid crisis, dealing with addiction, is that it's only the drugs that we don't like. One can't help but wonder if Devin Dreeshit would have been taken away would he have been a candidate for this program? And it's worth noting that they've tried to soft pedal a little bit. They've come up with an, uh, an interview where Marshall Smith, who we've talked about on the show before, Danielle Smith's chief of staff was Jason Lewan's chief of staff when they closed the supervised consumption sites. He's got a history with addiction himself. And somehow, according to Danielle Smith, that makes him the foremost expert on addictions in North America. And that's a quote. He's the one who's guiding all of this stuff. But unfortunately, he doesn't have the expertise that everybody seems to think he has. Lived experience alone does not make you an expert, and it certainly doesn't make you the foremost expert. What can make you an expert? Actual education. And I think we've got the video ready to go.
everyone so I'm just getting in the car on my way to pick up my kids after school and I just read an article um, about this proposed legislation from the Alberta government called the Compassionate Intervention Act where they can force people against their will to be put into abstinence and recovery programs and I like wasn't expecting to have this reaction but this is like so messed up and completely violates the rights of people and unfortunately this is a population that most of the the general population can't identify with and so they don't care about them and so it's just this this population that has no way to advocate for them at all and they continue to just be forgotten and die without services that they need, without harm reduction, which has evidence behind it. We all know this and get forced into recovery. And this is just wrong. It's wrong and it's devastating. And I will keep pushing. I will keep advocating and just hope that something like this doesn't actually come to fruition because it is, it's just wrong and it's a complete violation and it's not right. Now, it's worth noting that two days ago, Global News put out a news story where they uh, spoke to Marshall Smith and he said, no, 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 no. It's all been taken out of context. Here's what would actually happen. If somebody uh, if we think that somebody's doing too much of the drugs, then what we'll do is we'll give them a ticket and they have to go to the, the hearing. And it's up to them whether or not they want to go into treatment at that point. But they got to they got to do the hearing. It's like a, a drug court. So it's all cool. Right. That's fine. And if that was it alone then for sure. But that wasn't it alone. That was just something else that they publicly added in after the fact, because there were a lot of people who said this is a violation in just about every way that's possible. Is the forced treatment piece still available? Is that something that can still happen under the legislation that they're exploring? The answer is yes. Marshall Smith tried to soft pedal it by saying, but look, we do the nice things first and then we would force people. It doesn't matter what you do first. If you end up in a place where you're forcing someone against their will to get treatment, not only is the evidence crystal clear, it doesn't work, but you're actually doing real harm and you're violating the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in a way that is in no way comparable to the vaccination question. Moving on from there, we got to talk more about uh, Daniel Smith and the one question problems. Before we do that, I just want to go back to that clip that we played at the very, very beginning, refreshing everybody's memory. If you're just joining in, here's the clip. This is from uh, back in a uh, little while. Sorry for the delay, guys. Uh, but I do want to thank you for being here today. Uh, obviously, I have a background in the media, understand the jobs that uh, you have to do, and I have heard from my staff that you want to have a bit more opportunity to ask me questions directly on issues other than the issues that we're doing announcements on. So I know that Ralph Klein used to do this quite frequently, and so I'm, I'm happy to be able to accommodate that. And this will be the first, I hope, of many sessions like this. It was the, the first and only of 
any sessions like that. Uh, so that was Daniel Smith a few months ago talking about, hey, you know, I want to be available for the media. Here's Daniel Smith just a few days ago. Hi, it's uh, Audrey for Radio Canada. Uh, just before asking my questions, I just want to say that we've had a question and a follow-up for years, and I don't understand why we don't have a follow-up this time. Audrey, so it's, a, it's an election. Right That's up. why we're, we're sort of getting into election mode, and so we have lots of people who want to answer questions. It doesn't change questions. anything. Well, lots of people want to answer questions, so we want to make sure we get to everybody. Thanks, Audrey. Go ahead, answer your ask your question. Be happy to answer it. Hmm. Hmm. A little bit of a shift in tone. And it's a really important one to talk about. And we kind of talked about this a little bit on our last episode, where you know the problem is, is that if there's no follow-up question, somebody can ask Daniel Smith, hey, so about this forced recovery stuff uh, or this forced treatment stuff, it seems like it's a really bad idea. It seems like the evidence uh, doesn't support it. Um, you know, how are you pursuing? How do you justify pursuing this policy that is unquestionably just going to cause further harm and suffering to people who are already trying to navigate addiction? And Danielle Smith's answer can be, I really like bagels. Next question, please. That's why the follow-ups are so important. And if the follow-ups aren't allowed from a particular reporter or a journalist, then what that means is that they either have to coordinate and the next journalist has to give up their question or there's just never going to be an answer. And we've seen, history has taught us, that Danielle Smith, when she doesn't want to answer a question, she will tap dance all the way around it all day long. But that brings us to this week because Mr. Casey Bedew was asked a fairly similar question at a press conference where oddly... He was doing follow-ups. And it's, in fact, worth noting that at pretty much every press conference, except for that last one, there have been follow-ups allowed. This policy only exists for Danielle Smith. Gosh, I wonder why, but let's go to Mr. Medu's answer. Uh, just a quick question. You're taking follow-up questions from us here today. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the Premier's one-question policy going forward. Is this something you're going to continue to uh, do throughout the campaign, take follow-up questions? Listen, I support, uh, you know, the, the Premier's uh, comment. We are in an election uh, season. I think what the Premier was trying to get to is that there are more uh, media folks um, than we normally have in normal circumstances, wanting to get their questions heard. And so we would always make provisions for more questions. Uh, for example, um, I, I, and I have been at, I, I mean, at events recently where we have more ethnic media want, wanting to participate. I think it's important that we create the opportunity for a wide range of, of media to participate. Thank you. Next one. Well, I'm sorry, Deputy Premier, you just said we're in an election. Has I, the writ been dropped? I, I, no. <laughs> I, think I, I think I've addressed your question, my friend. Yeah. No, that was my follow-up as well. You mentioned the election. So just want to be clear, we're not in the formal period, right? No, no, no. I, I, I was just trying to, you know, go back to what the Premier said, which is that given the times that we're in, there are more interest in the, income, in, in the upcoming election. There are more people more media house, houses, uh, more ethnocultural media wanting to ask questions ahead of the election. And so we are taking steps to make sure that we can hear from more media folks than usual. Any more questions on the floor? Thank you very much. Uh, if I could follow up on SAFE, I just want to be clear, when you say take action, will Mr. Khan be removed from the Premier's Council? 
now I I think it is that would be a reasonable expectation. I, I haven't um, I haven't been briefed on on what is next, but I, I I think that would be a reasonable expectation. Deputy Premier, sorry, uh, just right there, you said that uh, the reason for this one question, no follow up at Smith's events, is so more media get a chance to answer question or sorry to ask questions, but. On Friday at that press conference you were at, uh, we only went to six reporters, six questions, and several people who were there in person, including CTV, were snubbed and weren't able to ask questions. Usually you take about uh, 10 reporter questions, 20 questions in total, including follow-up. We're seeing less than a third of that now. So how can you justify that? <laughs> I am not sure what you are alluding to, but I was at uh, that media conference as well. I was in the room, and most of the people that were in the room that wanted to ask questions get to ask their questions. Not true. And that concludes the announcement for today. It's the not true at the end that I absolutely love there. And that's one of the reasons why having uh, effective journalism is so important, especially going into heading, the, heading into the election. I love that video is long, but I love it. Because watching Casey Madu turn himself into a pretzel trying to walk back not only his words, but Danielle Smith's own words is, uh, is, is really quite something to behold. But we had a little bit more action on this this week because the press gallery, uh, the, the group of journalists that uh, make up the press gallery to cover the legislature, issued a letter saying, hey, First of all, this policy is kind of bullshit. Paraphrasing a little bit there, obviously. Uh, but B, you've been very vague because on one hand, you've said it's one question per journalist. On the other hand, at different times, you've said it's one question per outlet. We need to have some clarity here. What's going on? And there was some clarity that was offered. At Daniel Smith press conferences going forward, reportedly, bearing in mind that this changes on a dime, but at Daniel Smith press conferences only, there will be one question per reporter, and that's it. It has nothing to do with allowing for more uh, media outlets or media houses, as Mr. Badu said there, to get more questions in. As you heard the journalist in that uh, clip point out, quite effectively, they actually took less questions. So it's not about getting more access and more questions. Danielle Smith says dumb shit in front of microphones, period. This is an effort to try to mitigate Danielle Smith saying dumb shit in front of microphones, period. At a time where we should be seeing the highest level of transparency from anybody who's wanting to run for government especially given all of the scandals that we've seen from the UCP side of the bench. But let's be clear. The UCP aren't the only one making some rules about how and when they'll interact with media. Adam, good afternoon. I understand it's your birthday. Indeed it is. Happy birthday. <laughs> all right. Um, Thank you for your uh, uh, saying that you would take questions and follow-up questions. I'm going to take that as uh, your affirmation of openness and transparency when you're dealing with the media. Um, so I do have to ask, the Western Standard news site and our Edmonton reporter, being fully accredited members of the press gallery, why has your party 
cut us off from receiving the NDP press releases and media advisories. Well, sir, I, I very much appreciate the question, and I do appreciate uh, uh, you being here, and thank you very much for the uh, birthday greetings. Um, however, uh, as much as we have in the past uh, taken questions from uh, your uh, your bosses, your, your institution, unfortunately, your publication recently has been engaging in uh, very... Um, uh, uh, active homophobic, discriminatory, uh, hateful uh, uh, editorial uh, positioning uh, as it relates to some of our caucus members. And um, until such time as uh, that is retracted and an apology offered, uh, we will not be uh, answering questions. I'm happy to reconsider that issue should a retraction and apology be offered. But uh, between now and then, I simply cannot engage in any sort of normalization of that kind of uh, conversation. It is uh, a breach of, of our human rights code, it's a breach of our charter, it's a breach of basic standards, and, and so uh, I, I look forward to hearing from your editors in the future. Well, madam, Happy uh, to take I other questions. I must dispute your uh, interpretation of our editorial policy. We're not homophobic, we're libertarian. But um, with all due respect, it's, it's really not for politicians to say that we will talk to this people and, and not to those people because are we not all fighting the same election and are we not all in good standing with both the national and the and the provincial party your Saskatchewan wing of the NDP fields all our questions and sends us their advisories why won't you do the same so I'm happy to take other questions from folks and there were, of course, other questions. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack in that uh, that exchange between the leader of the opposition, Rachel Notley, and the Dark Universe version of Alfred Pennyworth, apparently. But let's start with the assertion of, oh, madam, I think you're misrepresenting our policies. We're not homophobic. We're libertarian. Let's be crystal clear. You can be a libertarian and be homophobic at the same time. And certainly some of the editorial that we've seen from the Western Standard, which is the, the outlet, the, the institution. I love the choice of that word. The institution in question. Uh, there has been no shortage of uh, homophobic and uh, not libertarian views. So much so that one of the writers has actually gone so far as to issue his own apology. Now, the challenge that we have here is this is likely, he said cautiously, the editorial that Rachel Notley is referring to, but there's been more than one that has targeted uh, UCP caucus members, particularly Janice Irwin. Now, we'll read the statement here. This came after a profoundly inflammatory, homophobic, transphobic article was written by Raheem Muhammad. His apology reads, I'd like to apologize unreservedly for both the tone and content of my article, Are Albertans Ready for Education Minister Janice Irwin, published yesterday in the Western Standard. And here's where he admits it. In a shameless bid to drive traffic to the website, I knowingly loaded the article with harmful queer transphobic tropes and dog whistles, paying zero mind to the damage my words would do to thousands across Alberta and beyond. I've since had a chance to reacquaint myself with the statistics on violence against queers and queer and trans youth, and I'm truly mortified by my own words. I'll be making a donation to Unison Chorus's Canada as a small act of penance, and I'll be taking a break from both commentary and Twitter. Now, that break didn't last very long, and while the Western Standard did delete that article, 
They didn't apologize for it. And there's a boatload of other articles that they haven't apologized for. A boatload of other editorials. This was just a quick little search of their webpage, and it gives us the headlines, Irwin has no, no one to blame but herself. Protesters shut down Drag Queen Story Hour in Grand Prairie. Drag Queen performed at NDP political meeting, was receiving money from kids. Another display of filth and vileness at drag show hosted by Edmonton Unitarian Church. There's a, there's, it just goes on and on and on. So it's understandable why an organization like the NDP might say, hey, you keep not only writing stuff that walks right up to the line of hate speech, but you're specifically targeting one of our MLAs and we're not okay with that. It's understandable why they would do that. Now, a lot of people have gotten outraged because it wasn't just the Western Standard that was, uh, let's go with, rebuked at this press conference. And we're going to play a little little video for you here for our, our Twitter spaces, folks. It's worth, after the fact, going and watching this. Um, now, we will admit we did do a little bit of editing to make this a bit more watchable, but uh, here's the video in question. Angry Caillou, Kian Bexty, and his institution, uh, the Counter Signal, were also refuted, removed, rejected at the NDP press conference. Um, and that was, I have to say, I have been struggling for literally years to find the best way to describe what it is that Mr. Bexty does, in my personal opinion. And somebody threw it up on the Twitter machine, and it was perfect. It's performance art. It's not journalism. It's performance art. And you see it perfectly in that clip where Mr. Bexty puts his hands behind his back to make it look like he's been handcuffed. He wasn't handcuffed. He was putting on a show. And the show continued. Because over the next couple of days, we saw a, a statement of sorts from the counter signal where the independent press gallery of Canada condemned Rachel Notley. They called her out for removing Mr. Bexty from the private function, which is what it was. We'll talk about that more in just a couple minutes, but this is where we have to talk a little bit more about what the, the, the independent press gallery of Canada is. We talked about it on our true North episode because it's run by the same people. Candace Malcolm formed the Independent Press Gallery of Canada um, after a bunch of right-wing performance art institutions were rejected from covering initially 
were rejected from covering federal debates. Now, they sued their way into those debates, arguing that it would cause irreparable harm to their audience if they weren't able to cover them. And because of the short time period, the judge did say, "Okay, well, you can go in. But that's where we saw for the first and certainly not the last time Mr. Bexley asked a question and a politician say, yeah, I'm not talking to you. So the the independence of the independent press gallery of Alberta is certainly a little bit questionable. But where it really starts to get interesting is we also saw the UCP war room because they didn't learn from the first one. They started up their own war room for the election. We saw the UCP war room decide to double down on this messaging from the independent press gallery of Canada. Uh, and they included a, a, a little picture there of a little Kian. Look at him. He's got his hands behind his back. It looks very traumatizing. How he chose to put them there to walk off on camera. And it's picture perfect how, as you saw in that video, and if you didn't see it, you should go back and watch it because it's awesome. But if you, if you go back and watch it, you can see Kian locks eyes with the camera that's filming this, this whole, uh, I don't know, is it interpretive dance? I'm not sure what to call it. Uh, but this gets to our big topic of the of the evening and this is where after i've done the the little things that we wanted to clarify here we're going to invite all of our twitter spaces audience to come in and weigh in with their thoughts on this situation because the reality is media and journalism has gotten way more complicated than it has ever been before and a lot of this has to do with the advent of the internet now, historically, if you wanted to do any kind of broadcast journalism, you had to have a, a venue by which to do that. And historically, those venues, the, 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 the airwaves were regulated by the government. And they were regulated by the government because those airwaves are supposed to belong to the people. They are the property of the people. And so making sure that the people had some say over what was broadcast and who got to broadcast and how they broadcast responsibly was a really important piece because there were standards. Now, those standards were typically upheld by the CRTC. But with the advent of the internet, all of a sudden, literally anybody with a cell phone and some free time can start to produce content. That's the whole reason why we're able to do this show. But there's a difference between producing content and producing journalism. Journalism has standards and practices. It has certain requirements. And there's a lot of mis and disinformation about journalism that's really important to highlight. We heard Alfred Pennyworth in that uh, video clip where the, the exchange with Otley, where he was talking about, well, we're accredited, so how come you won't send us stuff Accreditation is something that's received from an organization to a journalist. So you can be accredited to cover the legislature, but you're accredited to do that by the legislature. Being accredited at the legislature doesn't mean that you're automatically accredited to go cover the Olympics or to cover a private event. Private events are still private events. Private events, particularly on private property, are private events. And nobody owes anyone any kind 
of legal responsibility to answer their questions. Historically, the way that that's been managed has been if you subscribe to the standards and practices that exist inside journalism, if you adhere to those, then you would be allowed into these private functions, these private venues, where you can have access to the people who are doing the things. So Rachel Notley in her press conference, for example. That's how it's historically worked. But what we've seen over the last bunch of years has been a bunch of people who have figured out, hey, I got this really nice camera on my cell phone. I could go down to Rachel Notley's press conference and I can have a temper tantrum if she doesn't answer my questions. And I can turn that into a whole lot of subscriptions. I can turn that into a whole lot of rage farming. And we're seeing more and more coordination from some of the people who are operating these institutions. But it's really important to understand that when we're talking about media and journalism, there's a really big difference. This is one of the reasons why here at The Breakdown we make it very, very clear. We're not journalists. We try to share information and we certainly try to entertain but we have not, nor will we ever claim to be journalists because we don't follow all of the standards and practices that journalists do, in part because we don't have the funding for it, but that's okay. It's also really important to understand that doing real journalism does require resources. It does require supports. It does require editors. That stuff doesn't come for free. And it's fascinating that we're seeing people on certain sides of the political spectrum go after journalistic institutions because they're government funded. And I want to take a quick sec to talk about this whole defund the CBC bullshit because that's what it is. There's no journalistic institution that hasn't made mistakes. It's how that institution responds to their mistakes. That's what really matters. There's no editorial control between the federal government and the CBC. That's part of the reason why certain segments of the political spectrum have taken it upon themselves to start their own media wings to start their own media organizations. And you can see in the episode that we did on True North, there's no shortage of people who stood up at the time of the, the fake immigration swearing in and said, well, this makes it pretty clear. Sun is the Sun News Media is, is the official propaganda wing of the Conservative Party. Now, you could do with that what you will. Those statements are in that episode. But the reality is... There's no editorial control at the CBC by the federal government. They are funded in part by taxpayer dollars, sure. But so is Post Media. So is Global. So is CTV. So is every major journalistic entity out there. Because here's the bottom line. People don't pay for quality journalism enough anymore and it gets really complicated really quick because part of the conversation has to be and we've said it many times on the show before we'll continue to say it the foundation of any healthy effective democracy is a well-informed electorate 
Bob the plumber can't just go down to the legislature and ask Rachel Notley questions. He can't just go down to the legislature and ask Daniel Smith questions because he's busy being Bob the plumber. He's got stuff to take care of. He's got a family to take care of. He's got a business to run. He can't do that. And that's the role the journalists are supposed to fill. But what's happened is that because there's so much content that's being created by people who are presenting themselves as journalists when they don't utilize the same standards and practices that real journalists do, they flooded the market with bullshit. And that gives people the sense that they can go to organizations and institutions like some of the ones that we've been talking about tonight and get the news. But what they're getting is biased spin that's designed to make people upset and designed to make money. So how does a journalistic organization compete with that? Because real journalism at its core isn't about giving everyone candy. It's asking people to face reality. It's asking people to eat their vegetables. Not a lot of people like to do that. So if I can go to outlet X and feel like I've been informed as opposed to going to CBC or Global or the TIE or whatever, why am I going to do that? And we've seen a atrophy that's occurred in journalism, not only because a lot of these outlets have been bought out, but also because the money just isn't there from advertising anymore. The market has changed dramatically. Some journalistic entities have tried to combat that by implementing paywalls. But then you run into the problem of how is the electorate well-informed if they can't afford the paywall? It gets really, really complicated really quick. But one thing's for certain, when you have bad faith actors out there who are trying to rage farm in order to drive people to their websites, it has a toxic effect on the conversation. It has a toxic effect on what journalism can actually do. The NDP don't have to accredit anyone they don't want to if they're doing a press conference on private property nobody who's not invited has the right to be there what key and bexty and what the western standard are trying to do is literally walk into your living room and say i have some questions for you i've got my phone recording you'll answer them now right now there's certainly a flip side of the coin and a counter argument to be made that people who are in positions of public service do have to be accountable. There's no question about that. This is why it's very easy for us at the breakdown to say, hey, it's totally understandable why Rachel Notley wouldn't want to talk to the Western Standard, why Rachel Notley wouldn't want to talk to the counter signal, and why Rachel Notley doesn't want to talk to us. It's totally understandable. Because we're not journalists. But at the same time, if Rachel Notley was to say, you know what? I don't care who you're with. I don't care whether or not you have a history of writing editorials that walk right up to the line of hate speech. I don't care. 
I'm saying nobody gets a follow-up question. Then there would be real cause for concern. Equating what Rachel Notley is doing with what Danielle Smith is doing is a false equivalency. It doesn't work. Now, there's some very real concerns to be asked. There's very, sorry, some very real questions to be asked about how the NDP is making decisions in regards to who gets accredited, who doesn't, what their media policy is. We've done literally, I think, six episodes on how much control the NDP exercises over their message, not only externally, but internally. There's some problems that need to be addressed there. And by the way, some of those problems the NDP have even acknowledged as existing themselves. Neither Daniel Smith and the UCP nor Rachel Notley and the NDP are perfectly clean in any of this. But the people who are really dirty in this are the people who are misrepresenting what journalism is, what their intentions are, and what their affiliations are. Those are the people who are poisoning the conversation the most. People who show up at press conferences and ask bad faith questions should be ignored. If you're going to do actual journalism, you shouldn't be ignored. But if you're going to show up to a press conference and instead of ask questions to hear the answers of the people who are in positions of power, instead of asking those questions, you're going to try to advance your own agenda. You got no business being there. We've already got a couple of people lined up on the Twitter spaces, so we're going to get right into it. First of all, and I think we might be talking about children's meds, but I'm not entirely sure. Very excited to welcome back to the 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 forum, the open forum, if you will, Mr. Uh, Ziad Fazel. Ziad, how's it going? Oh, Ziad's mic is muted. Or perhaps he's wandered off to get a, a cup of tea. No, I'm here. and. Yeah, I was just cutting over from YouTube to uh, my phone. Uh, What's going um, on, sir? I just sent uh, two links in response to your tweet about the spaces uh, on the topic of propaganda uh, and right in, right in line with what you were talking about. So the first link I sent is um, about how uh, particularly people in power or the government in power uses propaganda. And it may not necessarily be to persuade you of their message, but it's to remind you or to instill in you a fear of them being in power and having impunity. So this is very much the Daniel Smith one question example where, with no follow-up, where, you know, she said that on a Friday and then on Saturday she went on her uh, private radio show <laughs> with uh, QR770 and she announced that's not just one question, no follow-up per reporter, but it's one question, no follow-up per media outlet. And she um, brought in this rule uh, in an interview only with one media outlet that has a supportive host that largely feeds her puffball questions and where the questions appear to be screened somewhat, or at least she's allowed the opportunity to dance around and not answer the question when it's asked of her. So this one question, one uh, per reporter that then became one question per media outlet on a show that wasn't accessible to all media um, is just sort of a, an attempt to show power and will not really persuade you of anything. The second link I sent uh, about propaganda is more of a general article, but there's some of the four or five different types of goals of propaganda tie into what you were talking about with these um, impudent 
impotent, insignificant, uh, the Journalism Association, um, where um, the goal is not necessarily to persuade you of a different viewpoint or to disinform you, it's to disempower you. It's to leave you confused and unable to make a decision, unable to discern between the truth and the lie because you're being gaslit so much. And you're being gaslit by people that claim to be independent journalists. And yeah, the point you're making, you know, we don't get a chance individually to ask Danielle Smith or ask the cabinet minister a question. And we haven't had question period in the legislature for a long time. And I think since Danielle Smith became premier in October, we've had a very, maybe a record shortest amount of legislature days where the government can be held accountable by the opposition. They cut two weeks so off. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. They cut two weeks off. They cut the first. Uh, Daniel Smith has only had two sessions since she became premier. Uh, and yeah. both of them, she's ended a week early. Yeah, yeah. So we're reliant on journalists to be our proxies, to be our agents, to ask questions of the people in power for us. So, yeah, we're very dependent. Um, on children's meds, I don't have much. Um, you can come back to me later if you want. Um, if you want... There's more um, background behind the Kevin J. Johnston decision, the AHS versus Kevin J. Johnston decision that was announced about a week ago, uh, the $650,000 dinger that he caught. Um, so there's more there with uh, respect to torts and with respect to the capability of a government agency to sue a citizen for defamation. So if you want, I can talk about those. I just want to look at the judgment again. And then... Um, yeah, uh, I can come back a little bit later. I'll give you a chance to talk to some of your other folks. But if you want, you can come back to me. I'll have uh, an update on the AHS disclosure on the ranch masks, if you oh, like. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, we'll definitely come week. back to you. I want to I wanna tread lightly around the, the Kevin J. Johnson thing, not just because, A, I don't want to give him any more daylight than he needs, um, but, B, because I have some bias there. Uh, I, I got into a bit of a dust up with Mr. Johnston myself um, during the municipal campaign. It, it was kind of a thing. So um, I have to A, disclose that and, and be mindful how I speak about it because I was very clear that, you know, it's interesting. I refused to do a debate with him. And uh, I refused to do the debate because of his history with hate speech. And that turned into a whole boy he doesn't uh, like being having the mirror held up i'll say so i can I, I would have loved to have been in the room when the 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 judgment was handed down but we will come back to you because you're right we do have a, a a few extra people in the ricks today we're going to go through everybody if you stick around uh we're going to work our way through it we got lynn and i'm going to add lynn in right now because i always enjoy hearing from lynn i hope i haven't made you too angry tonight lynn what's going on <laughs> no, <laughs> you just have so much going on. Um, true, true question. Since uh, Tanny or Brian Jean's office won't answer their phone or call me back, of course like not. seriously, this is why we need journalists. And of course, we don't have any, hardly any left in Fort McMurray. But you know, when it, you you say about. He's not firing on all pistons. Tanny doesn't fire on any pistons. But what is going on? Like, when I look across the river, whose signs am I going to see? 
I mean, that depends because, I mean, one of the things that we saw, uh, Thomas Lekasik, spoiler alert, we've got a really spicy episode coming up on Wednesday. Um, oh, my God. Are you having Thomas on? We, we, we did already. We were just in the process of editing the interview. It'll be up for our Patreon folks tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, we got Thomas on. And it's just, oh, it's a spicy meatball. I'm not going to lie. But as Thomas has said, um, yeah, right now, UCP caucus uh, and ministers are apparently having a debate with Daniel Smith about, hey, we would really like it if your name wasn't on the signage because we want a fighting chance. So, oh, I get that. <laughs> it's, it, I, whose signs are you going to see? I guess it'll depend on what the final version goes to the printer. <laughs> but no, am I going to see Tanny's name or am I going to see the other guy's name that I can't remember right now? Uh, you will see Tanny's. Because it's the, again, this is one of the things where if you take a look, and this is where the UCP bylaws have already been arguably walked all over. As per the UCP bylaws, uh, Daniel Smith has the opportunity to name four candidates. And she maxed that out a while ago, but there's this other little subheading in there that says, but the board can override any of these rules. And the board has overridden the rules and said, yeah, because we have a, a plane on fire falling out of the sky. We're uh, we're going to let Daniel Smith name some more candidates. So the party ultimately gets the say. Okay. The constituency association can have the the nomination, <coughs> but the party is the one who does the vetting, and the party is the one who decides who's running under the party banner. It's it's unbelievably not in line with the uh, grassroots guarantee and all of that. But at the end of the day, as Mr. Kenny said when he first took office, it's it's the person who's sitting in the leader's chair who holds the pen. Okay, but just for me and my, you know, people that I might influence, who's the Take Back Alberta candidate? I actually don't know the answer to that question. And I have to be careful because one of the things is, while Take Back Alberta has very clearly worked with and supported some folks, um, they're very, very careful about who they endorse or organize for i mean it's very easy to look at uh chelsea petrovich and say well mark marco van hugenbos okay. was her her guy in that campaign so clearly that's what's going on there and certainly we can look at jennifer johnston and see that david parker was involved uh in supporting that um but so that that's a question i need to ask i mean i've already asked brian jeans both his offices and i was promised to call back a week and a half ago um, I left messages last week in Tanny and his about their stance on Take Back Alberta. And surprisingly, no one's called me back. Well, he could be in his condo. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the wrong number. Maybe you need to, to call the admin. I sh I'm just joking. No, and this is one thing that I think you're, you're absolutely right on, Lynn. I think especially when it comes to UCP candidates in this election because of the influence that Take Back Alberta potentially could have over government, I think that it's incumbent for any UCP candidates to make it clear where their stance is. And if, they, if they're in bed with Take Back Alberta, if that's who you're, whose team you're playing on, that's entirely your prerogative, but you should at least be clear about it. I, I think we all need to ask the UCP candidates in our districts if they're on their side, because I think that's a key thing right now. Now, when it comes to, this is a question I'm going to ask them again next week. Um, when it comes to this forced, whatever you want to call it, I mean, 
if you live in Fort McMurray and Brian Jean doesn't live far from the homeless people, uh, you, you get to know them through the different programs in town. And I mean, I'm just, I was crying with that doctor the other day because some of these people, you just can't force these people to do things like this. Like it's just, it doesn't absolutely, it, it just breaks my heart. You know, I, I just don't understand what they're doing. And so I'll ask them that question, but I'll let you go on to another, another person. Thanks for your information, Nate. And I'll try and get out, figure out what, who take back Alberta is supporting in this. If you find out, please, uh, please let me know. I'll DM you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lynn. Okay. Good night. Nate. All right. We have, uh, Cassandra is next in line. So we're going to bring Cassandra in and then we have Herc and the crow, which I'm hoping is a Brandon Lee reference, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Cassandra, what's going on tonight? Um, oh, you know, I have so much to say. I wanted to talk about the first part, but I'm actually going to talk about, because we were talking about the journalistic part, because we're talking about press galleries, and there was something that happened with Rebel News. Um, there, there's actually something on the Canadian Association of Journalists website, and it was a, a press release they made in August um, 2020. And it was... Um, the National Board of Canadian Association gathered for regular meeting. One of our main agenda items was to discuss recent use of the Alberta Legislative Press Gallery's refusal to issue membership to employees of Rebel News. Now, it it talks about Post Media also decided to pull its newspapers from the press gallery, and basically the CAJ. Uh, respects their prerogative to operate their newsroom as they see fit. We are concerned this decision could place its journalists in a difficult position. But it also goes on to talk about press galleries are independent self-regulatory bodies that have been long part of Canadian legislators. They're recognized by the Speaker to oversee the press accreditation process and other rules for legislative journalists. Press galleries have a right and responsibility to admit a member only admit as members only those who meet the standards and definitions for journalism so long as the process is transparent and fair. It also talks um, about another time when I think the NDP had led government blocked access to legis of the legislature to members of Rebel News, but it also talks about Rebel News admittedly having its credentials denied um, by um, by the press gallery itself in the parliament. So it's, it's have this long, it basically has this long history of doing it. But what's more interesting in this article, and I won't read everything, of course, is that it talks a lot, when, it, when it's talking about Rebel News, it's talking about a lot of the same kinds of behaviors um, that you were just discussing in regards to Western Standard. And um, and so they, they outline a lot of the same behaviors. And this is, so this is, again, it's the Canadian Association of Journalists. Um, and I'm not, I'll skip down. So it says much of this is openly posted in their, okay. Um, so the, the Canadian Association of Journalists has previously noted inconsistencies with our suggested code of 
ethics, particularly the following points. We do not allow our own biases to impede fair and accurate reporting. We carefully consider our, our political activities and community involvements, including those online, and refrain from taking part in demonstrations, signing petitions, doing public relations work, fundraising, or making financial contributions if there is a chance we'll be covering the campaign activity or group involved. And this play, and they go on to say this replaces Rebel News outside the definition the Canadian Association of Journalists uses to distinguish our members. This distinction was similarly reinforced by Justice Derek Green as he considered who has constitutional protection as a journalist in the context of, it names the Justin Brake case, I'm not familiar with it, but it says in the decision on March 28, 2019, Justice Green stated that one condition for constitutional protection was that he or she, the journalist, is not actively assisting participating with or advocating for the protesters about whom the reports are being made. And it goes, so they basically um, did I, I denied access to the Canadian Associate. Rebel News journalists are, were basically don't have membership to the Canadian Association of Journalists in closing because of that. And it's for a lot of this very same things that you outlined um, when you were talking about some of the behaviors and actions of Western Standard. And that's my, that's my thing. No, I totally agree with you. And, you know, I think that, I think that there's two ways to kind of look at it. I think that that empirical reading of what are the standards and practices, what are the rules, that is that is critically important. But when it comes to Mr. Mr. Levant, and uh, his his journalistic credentials, you don't have to ask anyone other than Mr. Levant, because in 2014, he testified in court. I'm a commentator. I'm a pundit. Uh, I don't think in my entire life I've ever called myself a reporter. So Mr. Levant, when pressed under penalty of law, is apparently the first to admit that what he practices is not journalism. Uh, well, and it outlines that in this letter as well, exactly. by the way. Yeah, um, I, I just was trying to get to the finer points about, you know, what are the what are the standards that the Canadian Association of Journalists puts forward and expects from their members? Yeah. Because I think that's even more important when you're talking about, like, you know, who is a particular leg legislative or parliamentary uh, press gallery letting in and and giving they're giving accreditation. But there's another form of accreditation, and that's this Canadian Association of Journalists. And they have a they seem to have a different standard than maybe what's being what's happening. I think every organization does. <laughs> I mean, I've had people reach out and say, Hey, we would accredit the breakdown to cover this event. And we've said, Oh God, no. Uh, we don't want that because we don't want to blur that line. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll go to events and we'll hang out and we'll make jokes and maybe get some B-roll, but we're, we do not want to misrepresent ourselves in, in any way. And I think that, you know, the, the thing that I wish that the, the key investees and, and the, the Western standards understood is you don't get credibility because of the lanyard. 
you earn the lanyard with your credibility. The credibility comes intrinsically from the work that you do. It doesn't come from the piece of paper. Well, and which, and, and so it should be, and, and you're 100%. I'm with, I'm with you. That's what it should. It just, in my opinion, in my opinion, through my observation, you know, when, 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 you know, um, press galleries who are, you know, journalists, you know, I mean, the press gallery is, they're deciding, they're journalists deciding who gets to be a part of that. And, and they're not even following, they're not even, when they're deciding who can, you know, get that accreditation through them, they're not even considering what the larger body about that kind of, you know, the, what do you call it, the, well, the journalistic body that looks over, you know, what makes an, uh, an accredited journalist, you know, if they're ignoring that when they're deciding who they're admitting that to me seems problematic. I think one of the other points is that's, that's worth highlighting. And I've been corrected on this very passionately a few times, which is why I want to bring it up because otherwise I know I'll get corrected passionately for not bringing it up. The rebel wasn't admitted to the legislature by the press gallery. The rebel. Was no, I'm not talking. I'm talking. In re- yeah, I know that. And I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I agree but, with everything that you're saying. And I, I, this is one of the reasons, like one of the ideas that we, if, yeah, I was just going to say, like, but, but, but that's kind of the point, right? Like, why would the Rebel News not be admitted, but somehow the Western Standard's okay? You know what I mean? I don't believe that the Western Standard is part of the official press gallery for the legislature. Oh, no. Okay. I, I, okay, then maybe I misunderstood. I still have an issue with them, but anyway, that's my issue. <laughs> I do, too. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've called out the Western Standard on more than, more, than, more than one occasion, and I do think that there are questions about inconsistencies in regards to who the, uh, the Speaker of the House decides to allow to cover the, the internal workings of, of the legislature. I mean, this was what I was going to say a minute ago, is we floated the idea earlier uh, this week should the term journalist be a protected title in the sense yeah. that uh, a physician, somebody calling themselves a, a doctor is a protected title. Me calling myself a paramedic, that's a protected title. Um, there's, there's lots of titles that you have to demonstrate a minimum standard to be able to hold that title. I don't think that that means that, that people should not be allowed to generate content uh, because we'd be screwed. Uh, you know what, Nate? I had to take I had to take an ethics course and pass a test on that ethics course just to sell a car. This is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean at minimum when we're talking about a democracy and and how it's run and the importance of journalism in that in that ecosystem, it, yeah, I think it's very important that they should have to meet a certain minimum standard. Yeah, I totally agree. Anything else that you wanted to throw on there, Cassandra? Oh, you know what? I could go on for hours about the the clean fixing sites. Um, I was I was volunteering and working on the downtown east side of Vancouver when the very first in Canada um, was established. And at the time, a friend of mine wrote an article that went into the Vancouver Sun, and it was called "Sins of the City," and it was talking about at that time, the rate uh, the, the rate of spread of, of Hep C and HIV rivaled that of the, the 
the highest, you know, like third world countries that had the highest rates. The downtown east side was rivaling that. And that is a big part of why um, that was pushed for and Insight was set up. And it, it for not like the, the effects, how much it reduced that spread of those diseases was it was it was huge and it did it very quickly but it also did another thing and that was because there were nurses on site um it also avoided and prevented death and even hospitalization from overdoses and stuff like that and so it saved a lot of lives in a lot of ways and they're very important. It's a very important harm reduction tool. And it's also a place where, where addicts, when they're there, can access resources that might be harder to access, but because they have to go there and, you know, or it's a place to go where they can be safe and administering, you know, their drugs. And it, it, it tends to give them more opportunity to access those resources as well, which is another reason why it's it's an important part and part of you know reducing deaths and even helping people um overcome addiction absolutely and that's all i gotta say i couldn't agree with you more <laughs> i couldn't agree and we've done we've we've done bits where we've taken a look at the numbers as well on the 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 impact and the diversion rates that supervised consumption sites offer where they are able to get people into treatment are actually impressively high they have a net negative effect on the needle debris that you see on us on the streets they literally take in more needles than they hand out so they're literally cleaning up the streets uh in regard when it comes to needle debris and paraphernalia debris so it's it's there is a a huge amount of mis and disinformation that exists around supervised consumption sites. But the reality is, is that all of the evidence shows that they do an incredible amount of good. And it makes you, you brought up East Hastings. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump into that one because that's one of my biggest pet peeves. Anybody who talks about the situation in East Hastings and, and whether or not um, the, the supervised consumption sites and the, the, the measures that have been done there, uh, are effective or not. We see these documentaries that get produced where people are like, oh, it's the it's the worst thing that's ever happened. No, the reason why East Hastings exists and the reason why it, it has had the challenges that it has is because of a failure of the mental health system when the BC government closed a bunch of institutions, threw people out on the streets without any supports, without any protections, and there were people who preyed on them and abused that situation. Period, oh, 100%, Nate. I, I'm very, well, I, obviously, I, I know a lot about it, and you're 100% correct, and I just want to say that, like, that is 100% a big part of the problem. It makes me crazy when they try to present it as, oh, it's just the drugs. No, it's not. Um, and if you're going to talk about it that way, cough, Marshall Smith, cough, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. I could, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of things that 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 stem out from it too like yeah i mean a lot of people that end up homeless might not be addicted when they become homeless and they might become addicted women that are trafficked into the sex industry often go on clean and they end up addicted because it's a coping mechanism um and it's the same with mental health all of these things a lot of times when you see people on the street many of them had if you sit down and talk to them, had very illustrious um, um, lives 
and were even middle class and higher at one time and something significant happened in their lives that drove them there and often the addiction comes later yep love it thank you cassandra i appreciate that um we've got one other speaker that i want to get to before we go back to uh ziad and this looks like it is herc so uh herc i know you've been waiting for a little while thanks for for sticking around what do you got to say Greetings, sir. I am an American activist who's been trying to learn about Canadian politics. And when I heard uh, Drug Meat Singh call the truckers terrorists, I went on spaces and started saying, no, uh, Singh and Trudeau are the terrorists. And a Canadian lawyer came in and said, if I was Canadian living in Canada, that I could be incarcerated just for calling Drug Meat and Trudeau a terrorist. And I was wondering if that was true. No, it's not true. And yes, they were terrorists. Not all of them, to be clear. Uh, the I'm sure that there were plenty of people who were involved in the convoy who, you know, were just looking for a good time with bouncy castles. But when we're talking about the Coots border crossing, there were people who were there who were planning to kill police officers. Period. Full stop. There were people in the convoy and in the border blockades who were terrorists. End of story. I don't have a problem saying that. And I'm not, I don't think I'm going to go into, go to jail for saying that. But if you're, if you're bringing weapons to a, an illegal border crossing and you have openly said that, uh, allegedly openly said that you are planning to kill police officers, you're prepared to pol kill police officers. If you're providing speeches at that illegal border crossing, when you are saying, let's make this our Alamo. I mean, there's some American history for you. Uh, you're well into the, the terrorism. The definition of terrorism is literally the use of force to achieve political means. When you start to bring weapons to border crossings, when you start to block border crossings, and as we saw in Eastern Canada, when you start to use children as human shields, in my book, you're a terrorist. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, I'm just curious. So Canadians are free to call their leaders terrorists? Sure. Um, for instance, okay, um, and with these new censorship laws, uh, do people have to ask permission to share stuff privately, like in an email? What um, new censorship laws are you talking about, there, my friend? I, I think it's C eleven and C eighteen. Yeah, that's not true either. You're getting you're getting some bad information. So what those uh, what those laws are driving at, and they're currently going through the Senate as well. So that it's it's. It's, it's a work in progress to say the very least. But when we're talking about those laws, what those laws are trying to address is to ensure that Canadians have access to Canadian content as a priority. It has nothing to do with whether or not you can share content on social media, whether you can DM somebody content or whether or not you can send an email. Um, this is, that's something that has been completely blown out of proportion and those bills aren't a thing yet. So the intent is no different than the, the CanCon laws that existed in the 80s and 90s that saw Canadian bands getting a lot of exposure that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten. It simply mandated that a certain amount of content that was available had to be of Canadian uh, origin or at least have Canadian affiliation. I remember there were bands in the 90s that had like one guy who like moved microphones on the recording was Canadian. And so that was enough to, to squeak it into the CanCon category. 
Um, but it has, it has absolutely nothing to do with, uh, internet censorship. That's something that's been manufactured and something that has been generated to drive fear, but nobody who has read any of the drafts of the bills are looking at it and going, oh, they're totally going to shut down my ability to post a picture of my dog on Facebook. It's not a thing. Well, that's what I get for going into those conspiracy rooms. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for thanks for being willing to ask the question. Um, and it, you raise a really good point with the the conspiracy rooms, and because there is, you know, one of the things that happens a lot, and it has certainly happened with the convoy folks, is that you'll get somebody who says something, and it sounds really bad. We've seen this play out certainly in the United States as well, where you know we think about the PizzaGate thing, where somebody was like, "Oh my God, they're sacrificing children in the basement of this pizza place," and you know, if you're somebody who likes kids, that sounds terrible. And if you don't have the the wherewithal to take a step, and if there's lots of people reinforcing it, like, no, no, I swear I heard this is true. It's very, very easy to go down that rabbit hole of like, oh, my God, they're sacrificing kids in the basement of the pizza place. Or the Canadian version. You know, there's plenty of them. Uh, the 5G and the, the, the vaccines and all of that nonsense. There's lots of those things that exist. And if you have a, a space where everybody is saying exactly what you want to hear, it gets to be really, really dangerous. It, you have to be willing to have those those dissenting and disagreeing voices. So I really appreciate you, you coming on and asking those questions, man. Um, above and beyond that, I'm going to come back to Ziad because uh, he's going to raise my blood pressure before I, I plug our upcoming episode with uh, Thomas Lekasik. It's so spicy. I'm so excited about it. But uh, Ziad, go ahead. Let's make me unhealthy for five, 10 minutes. Thanks, yeah. Let's put the cuff on your arm and uh, monitor it for safety. There we go. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, to follow up on what uh, Herc was saying there, there's a technique people use in some of these rooms, um, some of these Facebook uh, debates or in spaces. It's known as the Gish Gallop. Uh, and um, it's where you're in a debate with someone and they hit you with about 10, 15 points all in a row. Zip, 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 zip. And they're uh, seemingly overwhelming you with their tremendous knowledge of all these wrongs or harms that um, you know, someone is, let's say someone that you support is doing. And so you really have to watch out for that. You see that a lot. Uh, it's known as the Gish Gallop. And the way to fight it is to stop just at one point or the second point slow it all down and look at that one point. And generally you can find from good authoritative sources that first point is kaka poo poo. And then, you know, the person might try to gish gallop again and you go, okay, now let's look at your second point. And then after a while, after one or two or three of these where the person that's trying to gish gallop all over you realizes that you're going to slow it down and you're going to call kaka poo poo what it is, excuse my language, on a Sunday night around the hour, um, uh, it's going to stop it. The uh, thing I wanted to mention with Alberta Health Services versus defendant um, uh, case, so it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the individual uh, gentleman. Um, it's just, you know, there are some really good lawyers in Alberta that comment on cases like this. Uh, Sean Fluker with the AB Law blog, a blog uh, from the University of Calgary is one. He hasn't posted on this yet. Um, and I think, you know, just some of the lawyers who do this are busy with uh, campaigns or um, haven't got to it yet. Uh, the decision was released on the 12th of April. 
But there were a couple of things in there that I wanted to point out that I think are useful for people like me and other people on this call who do advocacy or who make comments, um, you know, independent folks like this, let's say yourself, Nate, as well, too, that make comments about um, public bodies or make comments about officials. So I wanted to talk about some of those things. So overall, it's a hundred and uh, roughly 30 paragraph judgment. I like reading. Yeah, I like read. And, you know, the judge has written it in a in a fairly accessible way. I think if you've done some post-secondary education, you can uh, handle it. There's a little bit of sort of legalistic language, but otherwise um, the judge lays it out uh, in a pretty clear way. Um, and so, you know, there's a little bit of introduction stuff in the first 20 paragraphs or so. And then at paragraph 23, the judge talks about SLAP, or strategic lawsuits against public participation. And the defendant in this case tried to rely on Ontario legislation, which has a slap, anti-slap provision in its legislation, uh, to, do, to argue that what's happening here to the defendant here in Alberta was wrong. Um, and so, yeah, there is no, unfortunately for many people I know, uh, no anti-slap legislation in Alberta, but you have to use Rule 368 of the Alberta Rules of Court, which handles abuse of process. So for people who are, I, I suspect Nate, many of your listeners are involved in things like this, so Rule 368 and the way the court describes it um, from paragraph 23 to 27 in this judgment is handy. The other thing, particularly for people, I think I myself might have said AHS lied uh, once or twice, and I probably will do so again in the next week. So uh, there are... Uh, the judge specifically went from paragraphs 28 through paragraph 59 in depth about whether AHS can bring a defamation lawsuit. And the judge looked at Canadian cases, international cases, whether public entities as a government can maintain a def defamation action, and then is AHS government. And AHS tried to say, no, we're not government, and the judge shredded that. So um, it's a little bit reassuring where you see a public body behaving essentially, in my view, uh, lying and harming workers uh, with things like the vanish masks. Uh, it's reassuring to, to know that a government body um, cannot override the charter rights of citizens to speak in a democracy and our freedom of association, our freedom of expression. Uh, they cannot override that with the power of the state. Um, so if I were to say AHS lied and I have a... I, they, they cannot sue me for saying so because that would be an overpowering uh, defeat or attack on my freedom of expression. Um, the other thing AHS did here, you know, it's the legal tactic of throw all the spaghetti on the wall and hope some of it sticks. So there's a category of the law called a tort. So I just want to say I'm not a lawyer here. I'm interpreting it as best as I can um, until a legal analyst weigh in, which I, I think they're going to do more. Um, there's a thing called a tort, and a tort is where you owe someone a duty of care, even though you don't have a contract with them. So, um, you know, I may not have a contract with my neighbor, but I can't go throwing my garbage in their yard. So I have a tort duty to them. There may be other laws preventing me from doing that. So uh, the AHS attempted to ding the defendant with a tort of invasion of privacy, and because the defendant was using social media photographs and posts by some of the AHS employees, that didn't fly. They also tried the tort of assault, 
and the judge felt that the defendant's conduct didn't reach that level. They tried the tort of harassment, and there the judge found that the tort of harassment could be applied. And so out of the $650,000 of damages that the defendant was ordered to pay, $300,000 is for the defamation, but of the individual employee, not of AHS. $100,000 was for harassment, that tort of harassment. Um, there's also some special damages of the security system if the, if the uh, AHS employee provides that receipt. And then uh, $250,000 in aggravated damages, which is uh, quite, a, uh, quite an amount. So it's impressive to see AHS work very hard to protect its employees and protect its public health inspectors. And, you know, that's important for us to have a safe society as public health inspectors should not be subject to harassment. They should be allowed to do their job, whether it's a COVID restriction or whether it's um, um, a restaurant or whether it's uh, a public event. Um, so that kind of protection is very important. Just a segue to the other thing that I'm going to be doing over the next week. Uh, it's unfortunate and it's disgusting that AHS does not protect its employees when it comes to things like vanch masks. And so I talked about this a little bit last week. I've gone through 900 pages of disclosure, three separate disclosures from AHS, and AHS um, has been covering up uh, the material safety data sheets for the match masks, as well as um, uh, chemical testing and um, biological testing that would show why the match masks are irritating workers' faces. And on two separate FOAP requests, we see that AHS suppressed that. And uh, so I had I uh, got delayed a little bit. I had to go through these hundreds of pages because there was inconsistencies in how AHS applied. Um, uh, reductions to protect the identities of people who disclose their personal health information. So there are hundreds of AHS employees that emailed AHS as directed by AHS's publication on the vanish masks to report their health issues that they're getting. And AHS was, let's say, inconsistent in redacting that information. Uh, I've advised uh, the workers affected that their privacy was breached. And they've some of them have told me some very interesting things about what was going on between them and AHS. So I'm going to continue to protect their privacy. Um, I'll send you tonight, Nate, actually, an email with those three disclosures with their identities redacted. Yeah, I don't want that. Uh, I don't want the identities. I'll be tweeting about that further over the next week because yeah, it's just unacceptable. You know, we had in May 2020 over 150 doctors sign a letter. We had all of the collective bargaining, all, all the unions that work with AHS raise issues about these vanish masks. And for AHS to not provide the MSDS to their unions, not provide it in a follow-up request, not provide it in an open letter by 150 doctors. Uh, and then see all of the issues with allergies, eye irritations, skin irritations, um, contact dermatitis, other issues from these workers. It's it's abusive and it's disgusting. Um, uh, I just got held up for a while because I had to really go through the disclosures carefully so that I myself was not breaching people's privacies by repeating or re um, amplifying or recirculating those disclosures. So that's what I had. I really wanted to yeah, the messages I want to talk about was from the case of AHS versus defendant. It was the types of tort that AHS is trying to apply to protect its employees. Um, and 
from the Vance mask a preview of the hypocrisy in not doing so when they put a blue three-ply polypropylene mask on their face that gives them skin irritations. There we go. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. I think that gets us through all of our speakers for the evening. I, and now it's time for the thank yous. I want to say a big thank you to everybody who decided to to, to speak up, to, to share some thoughts, to ask some questions. That is – it's just – it's it's so what this is all about uh and and one of the things as you'll hear the tagline at the end one of the things that's critically important for this province is that we get better at having conversations we get better at treating each other civilly even when we disagree critically critically important so thank you to everybody who weighed in on the twitter spaces tonight as always thank you to the everybody who is in the the live chat whether you were on the the youtubes or or on the Facebook, I saw that there was some a little bit of little bit of spiciness going on in there tonight, um, especially on the Facebook. We'll go in and clean those comments out later. Um, but uh, thank you to everybody who participated and shared your thoughts on there. Thank you to everybody who was just listening or watching, whether it was on the Twitter Spaces that you were listening, whether you're watching on Twitter, whether you're watching on Facebook, whether you're watching on YouTube. Thank you so much for choosing to, to spend a little time with us tonight. And this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna do the little plug. Um, we got some we got some content coming up. We got us an episode. I've already talked about it a little bit, but I'm so excited. I'm gonna talk about it a little bit more. We've got like an hour and a half almost, where we sat down earlier this week with former deputy premier, former MLA, former cabinet minister, um, Thomas Lekasik, the Honorable Thomas Lekasik. Uh, and he shares some thoughts not only about the current political climate in the province of Alberta and some of the some of the the existential and like we talk about this where you know every every election is the most important election ever but this is this is different and Thomas does a really effective job of spelling out why it's different because this isn't just about Pol competing political views or competing ideologies it's very much to his appraisal uh, about a rejection of the norms and the rules that allow our democracy to function or not we're going to have that whole conversation up tomorrow for all of our patreon sponsors and uh, if you want to be one of our patreon sponsors you can be a patreon sponsor at www.patreon.com slash the breakdown eb uh, where you get early access to all of our interview episodes we haven't figured out how to do early access to the live stuff yet Hopefully we'll have a DeLorean shortly and we'll be able to make that happen. But in the meantime, you get early access to all of our interview episodes. The episode will go live Wednesday night for everybody else. And then it will be available as a podcast and everything else on Thursday morning. It is, you know, we've had some intense conversations on the show. Uh, we've, we've had some, some insight from people on the inside of things on the show before the conversation with with Mr. Lekasik, I think is probably one of the the most um, it, it's a bucket of cold water right in the face uh, for a lot of different reasons. And Mr. Lekasik does not pull any punches whatsoever. So that's definitely one that you're not going to miss. Going to want to miss. That'll be out on, uh, like I said, tomorrow night for our Patreon sponsors. Wednesday night it will be broadcast. Thursday the podcast will be out, and we'll be back again. Next Sunday, 
for another live show. And then uh, we got some we got some other stuff planned. We're going to be hopefully doing uh, some panel conversations with some folks from a couple of the different political parties who are running in the next election. We're working on setting some of those up. If you uh, are listening tonight and you're one of the candidates in the next election, send us a DM. We'd love to hear from you. It's kind of no, hard to know who's going to talk to us and who's not allowed to talk to us and all of that kind of stuff. So if you want to have a conversation and you're running in the next election, unless your name's Arthur, in which case you can fuck right off. Uh, but otherwise, we'd love to hear from you. Um, thank you again honestly to to everybody who participated tonight uh and who everybody who has listened um it's only going to get more nutty uh, in this wonderful little province of ours um it's uh it's boy it's going to be a bumpy ride so as always make sure that you're taking breaks make sure that you're taking care of yourself but while all of that is going on especially for the next month it's probably going to be the most important month of the next four years. That's not hyperbole. Thomas's comments, I think that, as you'll hear, will back me up on that. Have some conversations with folks. Make it a goal to talk to at least one person um, about what you care about in this province this week. Um, because it's it's critically, critically important. Um, that's what we got. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great week. We will see you live next Sunday. And uh, in the meantime, keep the conversation going.